0: First off, um, some questions that I think are very, very important. Do you think there's any chance that the Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey thing is a PSYOP? Go.
1: <laughs> no, I think uh, uh, I think Taylor Swift is probably the biggest uh, thing to happen to the NFL. But uh, again, that's just me.
0: Bobby, do you think Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey is a PSYOP? <laughs> Uh, I don't know
2: that it's a PSYOP, but it doesn't seem very real to me. It's, it's not quite as obvious as Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes, but it does <laughs> kind of seem a little set up to me. I think the, here's what I think there is some investigation needed into. That was a really poorly called game, that Kansas City game. And I, I just, uh, the refs, I mean, and, and yeah, I, just I, think that, I just think that the NFL couldn't be happier than to have the camera on Taylor, Taylor Swift. Every 15 minutes, they're going to have more 25-year-old girls watching the Super Bowl than no in the last 50 years.
0: And it's so funny, and we'll get onto some real meat here quick, too. When you suggest that the NFL is really pleased with Kansas City going to the Super Bowl, and, and people are like like, what, what, they'd fix games? God, have you guys, have you paid attention to sports for the last couple hundred years? <laughs> Plenty of times games are fixed. Are you kidding me? You know what I mean? Yeah. Now it's completely out of the question. I'm not even saying that it is. I'm just saying to have it be completely out of the question is absurd. Anyway. Here we are. Welcome to the Futures Edge Podcast. I'm Jim Muriel. As always, executive producer and co-host, Brains Beyond the Operation, Bob Chino. Today, and you guys know who watch this show, 70% of the shows we do are financial and economics and trading shows, and we like it, and that's going to stay the same. 30% of the shows we do are things that are special interest to us, and something today we're going to talk about is going to be very interesting to all of you, and that's Taxes. We have Jim Bennett from the Fair Tax Institute. What's your title there? Can I call you CEO? Let's call you Grand Poobah of the Fair Tax oh, Institute. <laughs> I'm,
1: a, I'm a board member. I'm the secretary and grassroots director of Americans for Fair Taxation. And thank you so much for having me
0: on. My pleasure. We tend, I tend to give people field promotions like we're in World War, <laughs> like we're in World War II, like all your CEO, your president, whatever, I don't give a shit, whatever, but good to have you. Um, there's rules for our podcast is that there's uh, no rules. If you swear, we're fine with that. One thing that I think you'll like about this podcast is, and because I have a, a crap ton of questions about this, because I find it fascinating. And I read your website twice today and the people on our, who listen to our show are financial people. Traders, they tend to have relatively deep pockets. When we had Vivek on our show early in his career, we raised a lot of money for him in a relatively short amount of time, and we're very, very proud of that. So if, if we can find something that people like, I do think people will open their checkbooks and give some money. First off, tell us the history of the Fair Tax Organization.
1: Sure. Well, um, three, pe- three people in the Houston got together, and uh, they were on Fortune 100 boards. And they decided they realized as they were going to board meetings that they spent more than half of their time talking about taxes. And they thought this is ridiculous. If we could spend 100 percent of our time talking about how to make our goods uh, more uh, efficiently and uh, more responsive to the wants and needs of consumers. And we could just completely forget about taxes. We would have a a much, uh, much more vibrant economy. So. They decided to go to uh, some academics in Boston. They told the academics, uh, come up with a system uh, that's going to be more efficient, more transparent, less of a dead weight to the economy, less discriminatory, and uh, above all, fairer, and uh, see what you come back with. And they committed to follow whatever the academics came up with. And they thought, well, the academics are going to come up with some kind of a flat income tax. And to their surprise, Uh, the academics in Boston came up with a national consumption tax. And there's a general consensus among uh, economists that a consumption tax is uh, more productive and more uh, efficient and more uh, helpful to the economy than income taxes. And so that's what these people decided to follow. Now, the the three are no longer with us, but they turned the organization over to a grassroots organization. And I was somewhat of a latecomer to the game because all this took place in the mid-90s. Even before I ever heard of this, I thought my father told me that a sales tax is more efficient to collect than an income tax. But I had no idea that there was an organized effort to uh, have a uh, national consumption tax. And when I heard about it on the radio, I decided I have to get involved. So to my wife's consternation, that's what I've been doing ever since.
0: That's fantastic. Okay. But now there's, when I hear, and I I read your website, like I said, I went over it twice today because I think it's fascinating. A couple of questions I have, and I'm going to list what my concerns are, and then we're going to handle them one by one, and then we're going to bring sure. Bobby in too. But consumption tax, you know, in a d- dynamic economy. Do we want to be in a situation where in some ways we're discouraging consumption? And then two, the second part of that question is going to be, is it realistic to think we can get politicians on board with that? Let's go with the first one. What are the studies shown about, does it decrease the motivation to consume? And could it be could it stagnate the economy because of that?
1: Ordinarily, you would think that, but uh, with the fair tax, there's an offset uh, because not only do we have the consumption tax, we get rid of uh, two taxes. We get rid of, uh, uh, we get rid of uh, income taxes, uh, death taxes, and we, get, and, we, and we get rid of payroll and uh, self-employment taxes. And if you look at what the most regressive tax is in today's federal tax inventory, it's, this, it's the payroll tax. Now, we don't get rid of the programs that the payroll taxes fund. We get rid of the payroll tax itself. So if, you, uh, if you're concerned is that by having a consumption tax, we're going to discourage consumption, uh, what you have to look at are the offsets. And the offsets pretty much offset any kind of a dead weight that a consumption tax might possibly have on the economy. The other thing that the fair tax does is uh, it only taxes new tangible goods uh, sold at retail to a consumer in the United States. And it also, it also taxes services. No exceptions. And uh, I'll get into a minute into uh, what we have uh, instead of exempting food and clothing. I think to, just to answer that part of the question, well, first of all, you're not going to have, uh, I think, uh, purchasing power uh, is actually going to be greater under the fair tax on the long run than what you have today, uh, because uh, we don't punish thrift, effort and productivity. The second part of your question. Sure. It's a climb. We've been trying to do it since, since uh, I think, 1999 when the fair tax uh, was first introduced in Congress. Uh, the big pushback comes from uh, Congress because Congress members look at the fair tax code as the big ATM. They can hide spending uh, because uh, instead of spending uh, outright, uh, they can spend through the tax code by giving exemptions and deductions and loopholes. And uh that way they don't uh they it, it look uh, they can uh, they can actually hide spending that I think we call it spending through the tax code and if uh, if we didn't have those loopholes i i think the uh tax collections would increase enormously. The big problem is with congress um our push right now is we do have some state initiatives, and we think that if uh we can get one state up on the scoreboard with at least a uh a state level consumption tax with Uh, I'll get into it in a minute with the family consumption allowance, which keeps the tax from being regressive. And uh, that's that's the big howl that you're going to hear from uh, one side of the aisle. Then uh, we think that uh, and shows success. We think that that's going to put pressure on other states and eventually upward pressure on the federal government. And uh, coming on shows is uh, is going to create the grassroots pressure. That uh, is uh, is what we need in order to get the momentum going.
2: So, Jim, do you guys have. Uh, sort of a framework of what it would look like and how flexible is it at your organization? In other words, it is a national sales tax. There's obviously, I've looked into it as well. There's something called the prebate. Can you talk about the prebate, the poverty level and where the actual level of tax is and where is there flexibility, if any, to get these kind of things through a Congress, whether it be state or federal?
1: Sure. And obviously, you've probably heard some of these uh, these attack ads saying that uh, what we want is a 30 percent tax on everything you buy, food, clothing and everything else. And they don't bother telling you the other half of it. The rest of the story is that uh, we have a family consumption allowance, which you've just referred to, uh, Bob, which has uh, which uh, is somewhat the equivalent of the standard deduction on the income tax. And what it is, is we no longer have an IR Well, first of all, why don't I go ahead and uh, uh, tell your listeners what the fair tax is? It's a bill in Congress, H.R. 25, which is what it's been for the past few Congresses. And uh, what it does is it replaces uh, subtitles A, B, and C of the Internal Revenue Code. Now, subtitle A is your income taxes, including capital gains tax, alternative minimum tax, and all these things that uh, your listeners have heard about. Subtitle B is your estate gift and generation skipping taxes, and subtitle C is uh, the payroll and self employment tax. So all those taxes go away, and we collect the same amount of revenue through a uh, national consumption tax on all services and all new tangible goods, no exceptions, sold at retail uh, to consumers in the United States. Now, of course, what you're going to hear is sales tax. Regressive, unfair to the poor, and if we didn't do anything with this, then yes, it would be all those, all those, uh, uh, all those bad things. But what uh, we do is uh, we have a payment from the Social Security Administration because there is no more IRS because tax collection devolves uh, to the states, uh, forty-five of whom already have sales taxes, so you don't have to put in new infrastructure. And uh, the Social Security Administration uh, makes a payment to every household whose members are lawful residents of the United States, and that untaxes that household for consumption up to the poverty level. So uh, what you have for the first time in America is up to the poverty level, there's no tax. And above the poverty level, everybody pays tax at the same rate on consumption. And theoretically, consumption is something that people can control. Your income, you can only control in a, in a very tertiary way. And then the government uh, gets a piece of your income for withholding before you ever see any of it. This way, you're in control of when you pay tax and how much tax you pay for your consumption choices. And there's no other tax uh, that's ever done that, except uh, state sales taxes. The states uh, have chosen to Instead of having what we we call in our jargon, the prebate, states uh, generally exempt uh, food, they exempt clothing and certain things. And you get into big discussions about what's food, what's clothing, what's exempt, what's non-exempt. This way, nothing is exempt, but uh, we reimburse at the beginning of the month every household for consumption up to the poverty level. And that's it. It's very
0: simple. Okay. Has there been any countries... In you know, in the last 50 years, that have instituted anything resembling this,
1: we don't have any countries except maybe Qatar. I think uh, some of the some of the Gulf states, the wealthy oil states, uh, that uh, I don't think they have an income tax. Hong Kong, I believe, before China marched in uh, recently, had a. It had an income tax and it was a fairly flat tax, but it didn't, uh, didn't have a sales tax. So that made it a sales tax haven. If you look at the states in the United States that have done relatively well in uh, both good times and bad, uh, there are Texas, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Alaska, Washington State, and I think uh, most recently, Tennessee, Tennessee had a had a, uh, had a uh, income tax on investment income and just got away, uh, just did away with it. So now Tennessee, I think, uh, has something like that. But none of those states have uh, what I just described as the prebate. So that would be something uh, something new. I think they they exempt clothing and things like that. They they go the traditional way. And uh, Florida and Texas have corporate franchise taxes. So they're not true macrocosms of the fair tax, but they're a step in the right direction. And there are states that have done relatively well and people seem to be moving to them. So they must be doing something right.
0: Bobby, why is everything so expensive? Just to, to put some, a point on this, I haven't brought my lunch to work in 20 years. And my three eggs and bacon used to cost seven bucks. Now they cost 14 bucks. My wireless bill was so expensive. Why the heck is wireless so
2: expensive? I don't know. I mean, it feels like a car payment from 10 years ago. What you pay for wireless now? I mean, what are you paying all that money for? Is it speed, coverage, data? Is it this 5G that we all needed access to? Unlimited talk and text, which I feel like we've had forever. Mobile hotspots, which I don't use all that much. What are we
0: paying all that money for? This is not going to come as a surprise to you, but we have the answer right here on the Futures (laughs) Edge podcast because the Futures Edge podcast is partnering with Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile offers all these features. For as low as $15 per month, it's built on the nation's largest 5G network. The reason it keeps costs low is because they sell direct to you online. They cut out the retail stores. They cut out the salespeople. It's just a much more efficient process. Why should anybody have to pay more than you have to for access
2: to the same exact network? Go to mintmobile.com slash futuresedge. Also linked in the show description to get a premium wireless service for, you ready for
0: it? $15 a month. Okay, and if you're like people who are old, like Bobby and I, we don't like to change anything. We don't like our routines to change. Now, is, you want to know how hard it is to switch your service? Well, the big wireless companies want you to think it's really hard. But switching to Mint Mobile super easy thanks to their digital eSIM card, which most phones now have. You can sign up and activate immediately right on your phone from the comfort of your home. If your phone doesn't have an eSIM, Mint will ship you a new SIM card for free. How about that? You know, Jimmy and I
2: talk about not wanting anyone to tell us what to do, that sort of libertarian bent that we both have. Well, Big Wireless wants you to think they're the only option. So do not be fooled. Go to mintmobile.com slash futuresedge. Also, again, linked in the show description. And stop paying more than you have to for your phone plan. By the way, now, through the end of January, new customers can get any plan for just 15 bucks a month when they purchase three months or more. This includes the unlimited plan, which is normally $30 a month. So not only are you going to save the difference between your current plan and Mint Mobile's normal pricing, but you're going to save $45 for three months or more if you sign up for more versus Mint's own normally low prices. Complete no-brainer. Don't even think about it. Go to mintmobile.com forward slash
0: futures edge. But maybe you should wait till after you watch the podcast. We don't want you guys leaving the podcast right now. So watch the podcast first and then go to Mint Mobile and hit that link. Thank you, guys.
2: So, Jim, I have a lot of questions. And I I don't know that we we certainly can't get to all of my questions. But one that jumps out at me is then, does, does the fair tax restrict the government in terms of what they can expend, their outlays, to tax revenue collected and then debt? That's it, right? In other words, they can't tweak things the way they want to tweak something. I mean, it seems to me this would make it fairly transparent on a year-on-year basis as to how much revenue is going to come in or how much came in. You would even see some economists kind of predicting it based off of sales. And I'm sure new indexes and indicators would come up to kind of track these things. So does that kind of restrict the government to those two things?
1: Well, I think what really restricts the government, the fair tax doesn't directly restrict the government into uh, how, what it spends money on, how much it spends, how much it borrows. That's the one point that uh, we'd all like to see if we could, uh, we could uh, get a handle on. What the fair tax does do is uh, with every sale and, uh, of a new tangible good or every sale of a service, the vendor has to give a receipt. Now, I suppose in the electronic age, it could be a, an electronic receipt, but the receipt has to be very transparent. It has to show the total cost, the amount that, the amount of the tax, uh, the cost of the good, and the tax rate. And so when people see that, uh, well, let's see how, mu- how much of, uh, how much of the federal budget today is uh, is debt, and how much of it is uh, is uh, raised by taxes. I suppose maybe a quarter of it's a debt. So hmm. when people see the
2: 75 percent
1: of the right. cost of government every time they go to Starbucks and buy a latte, we would hope people would say, uh, my goodness, we, we can see how much uh, uh, the government's costing a lot. And that might get some people interested in putting pressure on their elected representatives in keeping the tax rate low. And we think that if the economy grows, there's a possibility that the rate could actually go down. So indirectly, there would be somewhat of a control. But uh, again, it's uh, up to Congress what it wants to spend and how it wants to spend it.
2: So my next question then goes to uh, some of the effects. It's actually kind of a two-part question. Uh, Number one, do employers, FICA goes away for the employee. Does it go away for the employer? Yes. Right? It does. Okay. So that's a little bit of extra to the company as well. And Mm -hmm. then they could theoretically, I don't know how the math works, but they could theoretically use that to offset the excess taxes they now have to calculate and pay out, I don't know, it's monthly, quarterly, annually. It doesn't really matter for what I wanna ask you. But from a perspective of individuals, so the most concrete data I could find was in 2021, somewhere between 51 and 57% of the US population paid $0 in taxes. I don't know which one of those is correct, and this was 2021. I didn't trust any of the other data I found. Do you have any estimate as to how many people would it, would pay zero in taxes? Or is that what you mean by it's like you kind of have a choice, right? If you buy your staples and buy nothing else, you pay zero theoretically.
1: I think that since the Bush tax cuts, uh, I think uh, over close to half the population paid zero in income tax. Now, as we all know, if you're a W-2 employee, you do pay payroll tax. And uh, there's no way to get away from that unless you're working under the table. One of the advantages of the fair tax is that Everybody pays tax when you go to buy something and uh, you have to buy something, even if you have to uh, sustain yourself up to the poverty level. And uh, the drug dealer uh, and the uh, and the other uh, people who engage in underground activity, well, sure, they're not going to charge tax on their drugs. But when they go to Walmart or when they go to some place, when they go to buy a speedboat or when they uh, go to buy, uh, you know, some diamond ring for their girlfriend, they're going to pay tax on that, and right now they're not paying tax. So basically, we uh, we capture a lot more of the shadow and underground economy than is being ca- captured today. I you think mean, David, of course, on a
2: federal level, they're not paying tax on that, right? That's what yeah. you mean. Okay. So
1: I think I think it. Ca- I think one of the things about one of the uh, beauties of the fair tax is uh, the amount of the economy that uh, that gets captured by the fair tax that today avoids or evades taxation
0: and when by the way when you see us do hand signals back and forth we're not trying to shut you up you talk as long as you want they're here to listen to you that's just for bobby and i like who's got next question if i have a question so we're full old floor traders so we talk with our hands okay so i am a huge fan of john nash game theory so that that premise would dictate this question what is the path to having success has traction been gained Are there certain congressmen, and you can name names you want, who support this? And will vote for it if it comes up. What needs to happen for this or some cousin of this to be implemented, even if it's far away?
1: Sure. Um, Well, first of all, uh, we do have about 30 sponsors in the House of Representatives. At one time, we were up to uh, 70-some. That was when we had a radio talk show host on the air in uh, Atlanta. His name was Neil Bortz. He's retired about a decade ago. And I think uh, one of the things uh, we need is to fund uh, uh, fund some studies and fund some other activities, which uh, we haven't had the funding since we lost the three original uh, co-founders of the Fair Tax. We're looking to update some of our economic studies. Uh, we we would love to do some uh, market studies. Uh, what we're doing is we're uh, we do have a five hundred one c three, which can't advocate specifically for the Fair Tax, but uh, the Board members of the 501c3 are all uh, people who are fair taxers, and uh, they could uh, provide some studies for us and get us some of the juice that we don't have right now. Uh, Right now, we rely on small contributions from a subscriber base. We do have something going in Nebraska. Uh, Which is a state-level fare tax. Uh, The only difference is that uh, they're not going with the prebate; they're going with exempting groceries. And you know, we'd have to defer to them because they know what the uh, what their constituents want. But I think if we could, uh, uh, if we'd be able to uh, raise some money and do some more studies and uh, educate people on the benefits of consumption taxation, I think that would go a long way towards getting public awareness of what we do. In addition to having people like you uh, have us on a podcast.
2: Kind of a two-part question here. Can you go through the advantage of this fair tax, which would be a consumption tax versus, say, a progressive flat tax? And possibly, I've always thought a progressive fat... Like, I think most people understand why just a single flat tax may be unfair to people at lower income levels, right? Because they just... Too much of their milk money gets taken away versus a a rich person or a drug dealer's yacht money, right? But I always loved Milton Friedman's negative income tax, and I thought combining that with a sort of graduated flat tax would be the best solution. So you, it, essentially, you make $100,000. If you're on a 17% flat tax, you bring home 83000 That's just the way it works, right? Can you kind of compare and contrast, or no? And do you know what the negative income tax is that Milton Friedman put forth?
1: I've I've heard of it. The negative income tax is uh, is a way to, uh, as I understand it, if you're below a certain income level, then uh, then you get instead of getting specific welfare programs, you get uh, some kind of a stipend from the government. Yeah, and And then if you
2: the point of the the point I'm sorry, Jim. The point of the negative income tax is that once you get above a certain level, you still keep a portion of that rebate so that it encourages people to continue to climb on the wage scale rather mm-hmm. than now you hit a certain level and all your benefits go away. And then the second yeah. part of that question that I, I forgot to ask you is what happens in the fair tax plan with all of these sort of entitlements that go to people that are below a certain income level?
1: Sure. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, negative income tax because uh, Uh, If I go back to the family consumption allowance or the prebate, one of the features of that is everybody gets it. Uh, It doesn't matter whether you're Steve Forbes or Bill Gates or whether you're the uh, single mom on, I guess they call it SNAP now. It used to be called food stamps because we don't want to penalize people for improving themselves. So uh, the idea is that uh, we untax people uh, up to the poverty level, and it doesn't matter who you are, but uh, the impact uh, for the single mom on SNAP is far greater uh, than it is for, let's say, Jeff Bezos, uh, who uh, probably wouldn't even bother applying for it because it takes too much time. And so in a way, that uh, mimics the one of the advantages of uh, kind of a negative income tax. Uh, the flat tax, I, again, I like the concept. When you tax income, uh, you're taxing the products of two things uh, that uh, hurt the economy. You're taxing... Uh, you're you're, ta- you're taxing uh, productivity, and uh, you're and you're taxing effort, uh, because when you tax dividends, when you tax interest, you're taxing the you're disincentivizing people from, from saving and uh, and building up capital, which is what we need in order to uh, build the economy. And you're also disincentivizing labor, and, and because you you want you want to get people the if people have a choice between leisure and uh, and work economically, you want to push people towards work. Uh, maybe psychologically, people uh, there there may be differences, but uh, with a consumption tax like the fair tax, people have uh, have every incentive to uh, to earn their money because uh, when they uh, they get to keep what they earn uh, when they invest, they don't have to try to figure out well if I put it into an IRA, do I have to take out a required minimum distribution or get uh, get a two thousand dollar penalty? And I, I've seen that happen. Or uh, businesses don't have to worry about uh, transfer pricing and things like that, because uh, all that goes just out the window. The only thing a business is concerned about under the fair tax is what do I do that makes business sense. I think in my mind is one of the big differences, and uh, one of the another thing you have to think about with a flat tax is how long is a flat tax going to stay flat? A flat tax is still an income tax, and you have, uh, you have two con- uh, two considerations within any kind of an income is the identity of the tax base and the timing of the taxable event. And that's where all the myriad of regulations and rules and revenue rulings uh, 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 generate from because you have to figure that out. Whereas with the fair tax, the only questions you ask is, what are the gross receipts? What's the tax? And basically that's it. So I think the fair tax has a, a a greater likelihood of maintaining its integrity over the flat tax, so those are uh, that's that's why I think the flat uh, the fair tax is, has a clear advantage with consumption taxation.
0: Bobby, it sounds there's four trillion a year collected in taxes by the federal government. Sound about right? That yeah, sounds it sounds about right, right? Yeah. Four four trillion a year, probably, and they spend about let's call it five and a half trillion, uh, which is, I mean, completely absurd. So, do you, by your calculation, because I have, do have a question about incentivizing international travel, going to Europe instead of going to Florida. If by going to Europe, you're all of a sudden not going to be paying the uh, 25%, 23% extra on everything you get there versus going on vacation to Florida, where, you know, I I worry about that. So how do you address giving people the incentive to not start spending their dollars abroad? Is that even a consideration?
1: Well, that's interesting. And uh, I'll get to one of my pet um, uh, one of the uh, subjects that I really love to talk about because I used to live in Germany uh, as a civilian on the economy. So I can tell you a little bit about how the income tax works. What happens is if you, uh, if you travel abroad, let's say you, you go to France and you buy goods and services there, you pay their VAT. And you also pay their embedded taxes uh, because when you buy something, uh, France also has a corporate income tax and it has Social Security taxes. And uh those aren't free because uh the companies that have to pay those pass those on to you as a consumer. so if you go to France and buy those things, you pay those there, and uh that stays there and then and then when you come back to the united states you uh, you pay whatever the uh, uh whatever the consumption tax is one the one real benefit to the fair tax is that we take out uh, a lot of these uh, tax costs that are embedded in the cost of producing goods and services. So that our goods and services leave American shores without those taxes embedded in them. In Europe and in other countries, the uh, corporate income tax tends to be lower because they have a VAT. Uh, They have a national VAT. We don't have a national VAT. We just have state sales taxes. And uh, those don't get remitted when uh, goods and services leave leave the state generally. Imagine... American goods. Uh, let's uh, let's say I don't know uh, what do we what do we make that's uh, really good that uh, Europeans like. Uh, let's say our agricultural products or whatever. Sure. They leave leave Iowa. They uh, they go to Japan. They go to Germany. Uh, people who produce those agricultural goods they don't have to pay the employer portion of uh, of employment tax, and they don't have to pay corporate income tax. The producer there of uh, let's say wheat, barley, whatever it is, has to pay the corporate income tax and has to pay the, let's see what, uh, what, what they call that in uh, in Germany, it's called the Lohnsteuer. So they they have to pay all that. And so our, our goods for the first time, instead of competing at a disadvantage in foreign markets, competing at, compete at an unfair advantage in foreign markets, they'd have to pay the same VAT that those goods pay uh, they don't have to pay the embedded cost now. When those goods come to the United States, they have those costs embedded in them, so they have, uh, so they come with a tax disadvantage right away when they hit our shores. On foreign travel, there's a special rule that uh, there's a destination principal tax. So, if, well, if you buy a if you buy an airline ticket with a domestic destination, you have to pay the tax. If you buy uh, airline ticket uh, for Europe, tax is considered half earned in the United, half earned in the United States half half earned in France and so uh so they they pay they pay uh, tax on half uh, half the airline ticket same thing when on the reverse ticket so but uh basically i think if you uh, foreigners uh come to the United States they have to pay tax on anything that they consume and use in the United States. Now, I guess if they, if they buy it, say, ship it to France, then it, uh, then it goes tax free. When they get a hotel room in New York, uh, they're paying for yours and my social security. I think internationally, uh, one of the strengths of the fair tax uh, is exactly what it does for our goods and services compared to uh, farm produced goods and services. And this happens for the first time that we don't have today.
2: So before I ask you this question, Jim, I want to make sure that I answered someone's question today directly. Uh, When I was talking to someone about you coming on today, I was really excited to have the conversation. Uh, they said, well, yeah, but if it's a sales tax, then they, they track you, the government tracks you. I'm like, what are you talking about? So how else do they know that you achieve that number that the prebate equals? And I said, the prebate comes to you, right? And I think you said earlier, it would just be administered by social security, which does a pretty good job of paying everybody out uh, on mm-hmm. time, right? So it would just arrive at your house, you would deposit it or electronic deposit, whatever, and there's your prebate. And then from that point on, everything gets taxed that you purchase. correct? In theory.
1: That's correct. The prebate isn't based on what you earn. Uh, The prebate is based on how many people are in your household and that's it. It doesn't matter whether you're Jeff Bezos or whether you're uh, a single mom or whether you're a middle-class family. And uh, they track you exactly the same way the government tracks you today when it pays your social security.
2: So that actually sort of answers one of my next questions, which was, does, does the prebate come to every single individual from a six-week-old infant or first time they get a Social Security card? Let's be realistic about it. Mm-hmm. And I think it would also sort of encourage people to get a Social Security card the second a child is born to start that prebate. So is that how FairTax envisions it?
1: You have to designate uh, who it is at the household who actually gets it, uh, or you can have two people uh, get the prebate, but it's based on how many people are in the household. And uh, okay. oh, also it eliminates the marriage penalty because under the under the current guidelines of uh, Health and Human Services, uh, the first person in the household gets a gets a certain amount. Everybody else gets the same amount. And uh, the fair tax has that one little quirk that we like to reward uh, people for getting married. No, you're Can right. I take
0: a quick quick thing to mention, real quick here? By the way, yeah. for people listening, for my entire life, the fact that the federal government has a marriage penalty, and I know it's gone up and it's gone down to to di- provide a disincentive. For family formation is literally one of the most immoral things I've ever heard. I had two friends who through two different reasons were single and dating somebody else. And both of them said to me, one woman uh, who's a dear, dear friend, her husband had died. um, Getting married would have been bad because then her kids wouldn't have been able to get some of the benefits for school, for things like that. There should never be a system we're getting married should be a punishment. I'm sorry. Occasionally I'd grab my soapbox, Jim, put it down and go on a little bit of a rant, but please take the stage back.
1: Oh no. I think, I think that's a good rant. That's I uh, I don't think, I I don't think there should be a disincentive for getting married because we want to encourage family formation uh, as Absolutely. a social policy. I uh, again, we're not, theoretically, the isn't political, but, uh, And uh, because we're just about uh, a way to raise government, money for the government that's more efficient, that's more transparent, that's uh, less of a dead weight to economic growth, fair, non-discriminatory, unintrusive, all those good things. And uh, by the way,
2: for people who think Jimmy just made a political statement, he didn't because the fair tax would treat everybody the same, living together, single or married. So there would be no disadvantage or advantage. politics out
0: of it is what I was advocating Exactly, Mm -hmm.
2: exactly. I always like to point that out, Jim, because sometimes people accuse us. We're just saying something based on policy, and they say, uh, the amount of times I've been called a Biden supporter and a Trump MAGA supporter drives me crazy. I'm like, <laughs> every time you're calling were, me both, you're calling me, me both. I'm actually neither. So my question now goes to used goods, because somebody brought this up to me, and none of this is my own thinking, Jim. I'm an idiot. But from the perspective of used goods, used goods would theoretically not be taxed. Is that at a retail level or is that just on a one-to-one basis? In other words, if I go buy a house that's been lived in or if I go buy a used car with 15 miles on it uh, that somebody drove and said I don't like it and brought it back, what, if anything, uh, are the sort of idiosyncrasies of the used policy?
1: Uh, the definition of used under the fair tax is a good that's either paid, uh, paid the fair tax already, so we don't want to uh, tax things twice and we don't want to cascade taxes, or it's a good that existed at the dawn of the fair tax. And in fact, uh, we, have, uh, we have a credit uh, for the transition. Uh, it's called an inventory credit. So if you're a car dealer, you have a million dollars worth of inventory sitting in your lot, And it's already borne the incidence of the income tax, the embedded taxes, and all those things. Doesn't pay? uh, You get a credit, uh, so that uh, the only thing that you pay tax on is whatever the dealer's overhead is when you uh, when you sell. So that's the definition of a a used good. So if a car, uh, so if you buy a car and it's been driven 15 miles and it's been returned, but it paid the tax, then uh, uh, then it's a used good. if, uh, If for whatever reason uh it gets returned and the tax gets uh, the tax gets uh, remitted uh because the uh, sale was taken back uh then it's no longer used goods new goods that's uh, that's how we take care of used goods or if uh, or with with the used car dealer uh, you don't pay tax on the used car but in effect uh when the used car dealer uh, on his overhead when he sells you the car you do pay tax on on his overhead so, okay
0: so so, Jim, I just want an assurance here because one of the things I've been ranting about on my little rants is the is the movement toward a central bank digital currency, which I think is just a horrendously bad idea for society to move that way. My, my conviction has always been that governments throughout history like. To increase their power and control and the ability to, to surveil and the ability to watch all your transactions is one of those things. Is there any implications for the use of cash within the fair tax system? No, cash would be the same as always, right?
1: Exactly. Uh, the fair tax is, uh, is agnostic as far as cash or uh, yeah. digital currency. Uh, it doesn't make a judgment that way.
0: That makes sense. Bobby?
2: Yeah, so did, I'm sorry. Did we clarify homes, for example? So if you pay the fair tax on a home, and then you sell it through a broker or however you're going to sell it online, uh, the person who buys it is likely not going to pay tax on the home. The reason That's I'm right. asking well, this question, and maybe you can answer my, my sure. question behind the scenes more than anything. The more that I think about this and the more that I talk to you, I see this as very pro-competitive. So for example, you know, I, I was looking at cars today. I always do. I don't need a car, but I was looking at cars today. And I noticed that a base level car in a from a particular maker, has gone up about $25,000 since 2019. And subsequently, the used cars have gone up as well. And I start to think to myself, well, I would only look at used cars if there was a fair tax, which to me would bring down the prices of new cars. I mean, I would never even consider a new car, unless they were selling the new car at such a low price that the fair tax uh, added to it, made it worth it versus the, the used car. I think of things like Mint Mobile, who's a sponsor of ours, right? If you're going to be by the way, we love Mint Mobile. They're a sponsor love of this Mint show. Love Mint
0: Mobile. Thank you for sponsoring. Yeah. You guys are the best. Guys, please click the link in our show. To go to Mint Mobile. Check it out. Why I mean, not pay less money? Anyway.
2: It is so much less money for the exact same service.
0: <laughs> Sorry, you have to be part of this, Jim. That's okay. But like, it also brings <laughs> up another thing. make Something a living. Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
2: How does so number one, am I wrong about the housing part? And number two, what about services? Since theoretically every month that service is new.
1: Sure. Well, uh about about houses, houses are treated exactly the same as any other good or That's service right. under the fair tax. That's great. um if a house existed at the dawn of the fair tax, it's uh not a new house. Now you pay tax on the broker's services, the uh the, the closing company services, the lawyer's services. But you wouldn't pay uh tax on the on the house. Now when you put an addition on the house, uh then that's a new house. Uh then uh, then you pay uh tax on the uh on the work that goes into the house. And a lot of people like to improve their houses. I think unused versus new, if uh the price of a new car goes up, then probably that would uh make the price of a used car go up somewhat because markets tend to adjust yeah. uh based on based on what the cost of a new car is. And of course, I I can't tell you how uh, how the markets going to respond. I think eventually, uh, the fair tax does. Uh, I think environmentalists will like this because the invite uh, because uh, the fair tax does encourage uh, reuse of property because uh, used goods, in other words, because that had already paid tax, don't pay tax again. You so you don't have a throwaway society.
0: A quick thing because something just dawned on me is that in during the current system for housing. Everybody is so keyed into the fact that interest on your mortgage is tax deductible. Of course, that would be gone away because there's nothing to deduct the tax from as far as your income mm-hmm. tax goes. But I've always thought that that's not that big a deal. The prices of the houses would adjust to that because the demand okay. of the houses would adjust, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Bob. That's it, it just here's, here's one thing
1: I like about that. Under the fair tax, we don't tax the income in the first place. Uh, that makes the uh, interest on the mortgage and the real estate taxes tax deductible and so in effect you not only get an interest deduction in quotation marks under the fair tax uh, for interest uh, interest and on your uh, state and local property taxes you get a deduction on your down payment you get a uh, get an interest you get a tax deduction on the appreciation of the house when you sell it And you turn around and you do the whole uh, you you get the same deduction all over again on your property, on your uh, uh, on your payroll tax. Because remember, on your payroll tax, you pay tax on the payroll tax and uh, that's not deductible from your income tax.
0: Okay. so. I just want to make one point about that for the people too. And then Bobby, you asked the question too. But the mm-hmm. fact that, that interest on your mortgage is tax deductible is a way of the government to wave their magic hand and favor certain assets above others. We've yep. seen how that works out when they favor certain assets above others. We all live through the housing bubble and its subsequent collapse. The fact that this pulls the government out and the, the people who have the money in their hand go after the goods that they want Instead of the government favoring goods is inarguably good in my opinion, Robert?:
2: Yeah, no, I agree, and that brings me to the, back to the question of services. I'm assuming, Jim, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you know, mint mobile being near 60 percent of what I used to pay, plugging them again. but every month it's a new service, right? So every month there's a new mm-hmm. vat. I I called it a VAT. I'm sorry. Every month there's a new fair tax, right? Because it's a new service. It's theoretically. So anytime you use a lawyer, it's a service. Anytime you use a cell phone service or something like that, it's a new charge. It's a new purchase, correct?
1: Correct. But there are certain embedded tax costs uh, in providing the service that no longer exist uh, with the fair tax. Uh, Predominantly, the uh, the self-employment tax, which is 15.3%. And that comes out with the fair tax. So... Uh, the provider of a service is going to get a certain offset and be able to provide uh, the uh, service to you at a pre-tax price below what uh, that provider is going to be able to provide it to you now. So there's a, uh, there's a certain benefit. And uh, since you're no longer paying uh, payroll tax and you're no longer paying income tax, uh, you're going to have more money in your pocket to pay for that service. So I think no, I... in most cases, uh, people will be better off. And by the way, if you're a retiree and you depend mostly on Social Security, there's a, a little chestnut in the fare tax that adjusts the Social Security benefit so that if the cost of living goes up due to the fare tax, the Social Security benefit is adjusted so seniors don't get hurt under the fare tax. And uh, those are the people who are at least able to make adjustments in their lives due to economic changes.
2: So this is, I want to throw this out, and this is more of a statement than anything, I'm not worried about the prices going up based on the fair tax at all, because as you said, number one, people will end up being either as net-net the same or better off. Very few will end up worse. Um, I actually, this to me is one of the big positives. You just take what Jim and I normally do and you look at what's happened over the course of inflation and as wages start to catch up, which they still have not caught up fully to where inflation went. If you look at the CPI as just an index rather than a rate of change. Wage growth is still well below where the CPI increased to, yet we spent. So the minute that people see extra money in their check, they're not going to notice that their, their Mint Mobile bill has gone up by, you know, a small percentage or point or whatever, because they just have more money and they don't care. If we were talking about this in Japan, I might worry about it. I'm not worried about it here in the U.S., where Japan is already a nation of savers. So I completely see the very first effect for people would be their increased paycheck to me. Sure, And when, they, when you implement this.
1: Yes, and they'll have, more, they'll have control over, uh, when they, over when they pay tax and where, where they and uh, how much they pay because they pay tax based on their uh, consumption choices, not on the federal government uh, deducting money from their paycheck. Or, Which would make uh, them better
2: spenders, income. right? More people. So I was talking to my last thing, Jimmy. I'm sorry. Sure, I was no, talking keep to going. a recently about a way to reduce his $276 a month cable and Internet bill. And he said to me, you know, there's a certain amount I'll pay for convenience because teaching my wife how to use this app and teaching my daughters how to do this, blah, blah, blah. If we had fair tax, I bet you he spends the time to teach them because not only is he he going to pay more, but the percentage in the fair tax is theoretically flat. So it's just a much, most people live on dollar amounts, not percentages, right? So if they look at the tax on something, they'll be not only am I paying 276, but i 'm paying fifty dollars in taxes on this. I could drop it down to eighty and only pay sixteen dollars in taxes. obviously i 'm making those numbers up. but we need really people to understand if they're going to look into this, which I hope you all do to think about the amount your check increases first and foremost, and then start thinking about it from
0: that perspective Sam' great, and i 'm going to add in too there was a point that we glossed over kind of quickly that I think is fascinating. Right now, the world of the criminal underworld. And Bobby and I have grown up in Chicago, so we have a little bit of knowledge of the criminal underworld, let's just say. But anyway, there's a lot of cash transactions. And in the past, if you go, you know, if you're going, this is me in 1985, going to buy pot from somebody in an alley. You're paying him a couple hundred bucks. He goes out and spend that money. The government never gets their cut. This time, you, if you're going out and spending a couple hundred bucks to do something illegal, When he goes back to legitimize that money, it is being captured and he's paying taxes. People know what I always say is the one thing I worry about having good tax policy is that the government could possibly conceivably have more money. And that's the last thing I want. I think a lot (laughs) of the problems with the federal government come from having too goddamn much money to begin with. We give them $5 trillion a year, they spend seven. But that's almost a little bit of a joke when I say it, just a little bit. But I think that part is very, very important. Would you say so, Bob, that the criminality part of it is very interesting and important?
2: Yeah, I think it's huge because one of the things you always worry about is sort of the the black market, right? The under the table economies. But there's literally almost no reason for people to get paid cash. Obviously you got social security and other things that wouldn't go away. But there's almost no reason for people to get paid cash under the table now if you had a fair tax system. There's some. But it's yeah. certainly greatly
0: reduced. Yeah, and people pay a lot of people uh, under the yep. table in, in cash. I happen to know a ton of contractors, and of course, I would never think of it, or no, none of the businesses I have. But I mean, there is dramatic incentives to have off-book transaction transactions, and this takes them away completely. To say that this is a good idea is, I think, a wild understatement. I think this would be a tremendous boost for the economy and, and be in, uh, undeniably good. The question is that we have to start talking about now. I want the conversation to shift for this is what we can do, the people listening to this, us as somewhat mouthpieces that for some only God knows reason people listen to us on this podcast. I think it's because one thing to always say, Jim, is you may think Bobby and I are absolutely full of shit, but you have to admit we get good and interesting guests and you are one of those. So what's the tack we now take? Is it just giving money to your organization to give you the flexibility to do things, to do studies, to talk to politicians?
1: Well, we'll never turn that down. But I think the most important thing to do is to get on, uh, go to fairtax.org and go down to get info. Uh, because uh, if you if we get on our list and you start getting uh, information every week, you get a chairman's report, uh, you get my grassroots corner, which I write every week. And then uh, you get a couple of guys from uh, North Carolina and Florida. They're called the Fair Tax guys, uh, uh, Bob Paxton and Bob Scarborough. And uh, they put on a podcast called Fair Tax Power Radio, and, uh, which is completely different, so it doesn't compete with you guys. You'll get exposure to the Fair Tax every single week, and you'll start to get the message. And you'll be able to uh, – I think
0: that's the most important thing you can do. So I, here's my, my plea to you guys. I'm not going to – who are watching this. I'm not going to ask for money, but there's two reasons. I want you guys please to go on the FairTax.org website. And check it out and do it. Because there's a couple of reasons. One, I think the cause is amazingly good. And I think if it can gather momentum, it could do some real good. Two, I want to have a relationship with the FairTax.org. I want to be part of that. And I want to show them that we have a lot of people who give a shit about making this country a better place, particularly through uh, taxation. Bobby, you got anything to add to that?
2: You know, I agree. And one thing that's good about this sort of broadcasting, this sort of platform is, is podcasters don't compete with each other. Oh. We're happy to promote that show you mentioned. Um, you know, we're yeah. happy to go on if they want us to. Uh, we want to support what you're doing because the system now, it's, it's just anyone who's ever had to do taxes over and above just a simple 1099. Um, even the 1099 it's just it's ridiculous and funding agents and everything else that has to go on with it it is it is one of the biggest waste areas in in the u.s and but the you only could, way you could marry it.
0: a tax attorney which i did which is a was a fabulous idea i don't uh, even i don't shit about taxes and i don't need to old peg has, the has, to next be, room has got her hat on it has
2: to be grassroots so
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, thank
1: you so much for having me on i think a podcast like this is the way to get the word out uh, because the way uh, the way to uh, grow the movement, make the fair tax happen, is through the grassroots. Because we need everybody getting on, getting in touch with your Congress. Uh, we call them the Congress critters on Fair Tax Power Radio. <laughs> getting to them. Tell your friends, family, colleagues, neighbors about the fair tax and get the word out. But hopefully, uh, someday, uh, very soon, we'll get it done.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Sounds, so sounds like blue skies. and It sounds like happy days, but it, it is going to be a fight. Clearly, we've laid out a long road ahead. But again, we like a good fight. And we, by the way, back to the competition thing. We love competition in podcasting and from Mm -hmm. radio shows because we are so damn cocky that we think we just got a better show than everybody else. And we were born cocky. I'm not sure that it's anything that we've reinforced in each other.
1: Yeah, we should have you on that show. Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
0: Do they ever talk about, um, you know, macroeconomic stuff? That's kind of what our, I don't know if you know much about what Bobby and I have done. We're, um, you know, we've been traders for 37 years um, I'm an analyst for hedge funds and things, so we our skill is uh, trading, bolstering with macroeconomic uh, thesis and fundamentals. I just gave a speech in Arizona on Thursday to a group of farmers, by the way, who wanted a macroeconomic um, viewpoint. It was so much fun. Those guys are smart as shit, Bobby. You should see yeah. how the questions no, that farmers ask. They know finance. They know growing. They know a lot of stuff.
2: Yeah.
0: Anyway, let's wrap it up. That's what this has been a ton of fun, Jim, and hopefully we can uh, drive some traffic to your website and ultimately. Wink, wink, drive some money to your website from our people. Yeah. We say we only want you to go to the website, but we're transparent. We deep down want you to write a check. Okay, let's get it out there. Thank you, Jim and Bob. It was a pleasure.